The four horsemen of the apocalypse are iconic, familiar to believers and unbelievers alike. But how much do you really know about them? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah removes the shroud of mystery from these figures described in Revelation chapter 6 and reveals what they represent. From signs, here's David to introduce his message, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Well, you're in for an interesting study from the book of Revelation and the sixth chapter, how John the Revelator tells us about the beginning of the tribulation. Matthew calls it the beginning of sorrows, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We'll get to that in just a moment. I hope you are following along in this series, which is based on the book, the book of signs. And uh, I hope you know you can still get that book from Turning Point by going to davidjeremiah.org. It's a 460-page um, book that has 31 chapters, and each chapter is like an article written about one of the issues in the prophetic future. I know that it will help you get understanding, and certainly one of the features of the book is it has an index in it. You can look up anything you don't understand, and you might find some help in that book by going to the page that's referenced in the index. And we want you to know you can still get that, but now you have to get it from our website. And during this month, we're making available, uh, as a response to your gift, a booklet called Bible Prophecy by the Numbers. It's an interesting way to look at the numbers in the book of Revelation in the prophetic scripture. And, of course, Revelation is full of numbers. You can send your gift and ask for the book, and we'll send it right to you to say thank you. I think you'll enjoy this and have a good time um, figuring out where all these numbers fit, and it will add to your ability to understand the book of Revelation going forward. Well, right now, I want to get started with the first of two messages on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A couple of years ago, the evangelical world was abuzz over the release of a book Love Wins by Pastor Rob Bell. The book was Bell's attempt to settle the tension between God's love and God's wrath. The reactions to the book were passionate and critical and divided, and the amount of publicity God and hell received was remarkable. Shortly after the firestorm began, Time Magazine ran a cover story entitled, No Hell? Bell was grilled by Martin Basher on the MSNBC television network and questioned by George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America. Newsweek religious editor Lisa Miller interviewed him before a live audience in New York City, and the internet was no different, with articles and blog posts and comments debating the prudence of the biblical doctrine of hell. And while some commended Bell, others crucified him. And for a few weeks, it seemed like all anybody wanted to talk about was God's wrath and God's justice. Those same questions rose to the surface. But this time, the debate wasn't surrounding words on a page, but children in a classroom. In the wake of the Newtown shooting, where the most innocent of our society were slaughtered by one wicked young man, We were left crying and longing for a day when evil and wicked are punished and when justice is a reality. Which leads us to the main point of our text and the next section of Revelation, which teaches us this truth that God is just and he will justly repay 
all the ways that his glory has been despised and his holiness defiled. Before I begin our study, I would like to remind you that God's wrath is a good and loving truth. If we come to understand the nature of God's wrath, our hearts will be free from the bitterness of revenge and filled with the hope that one day everything will indeed be made right. When we met together the last time in the book of Revelation, we were talking about worship. We're going to begin to look a little bit into wrath. As we come to chapter 6, man's day is dying. Structure is being destroyed, and Jesus Christ is about to take back the control of the earth. As the worthy lamb, he comes to the throne, and he takes the scroll, which we were introduced to last time, and he takes the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth, and as each of the seals of the scroll is broken and the scroll is unrolled, it reveals more and more of the wrath of God upon this wicked earth. And by the time the seventh seal is broken, the entire tribulation will have been unleashed. And in the seventh seal are the seven trumpet judgments. And in the seven trumpet judgments are the seven bowl judgments. Here in the sixth chapter of Revelation, the first four seals are broken to reveal the events that will initiate the seven years of trouble on this earth. This is the beginning of the day of God's wrath. Worship is over for now. It is time for the wrath of the Lamb. As the four seals are open, one of the four living creatures summons a rider on a horse to go forth upon the earth. Literally, when it says come and see, more than likely means to go forth, to go and make this happen. And of course, we wonder as we read this in our culture, why do we have to read about horses? Horses don't really say much to us in our culture today. But horses in the Bible represent God's activity on this earth and the forces that he uses to accomplish his divine purpose. It's very probable that the imagery we have here in the book of Revelation is just like that which was the vision of Zechariah. Did you know in the Old Testament the prophet Zechariah saw chariots driven by red horses, black horses, white horses, and bay horses. And he was told by an angel that these were the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Does that not sound like we just read that here in the book of Revelation? It's found in Zechariah 6, 1 through 8. So let's look at these seals as they're opened and the picture that is given to us of what will happen on this earth. First of all, the first seal is opened and we meet the white horse. Notice again verses 1 and 2. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now the white horse in oriental imagery is the symbol of a conqueror. Here at the beginning of the tribulation, the white horse rides first across the earth. And what does this refer to, this white horse? Well, if you are a surface reader of the Bible, you might be persuaded that this is a reference to Jesus Christ. Does not the Bible say that in the end, Jesus Christ is going to come back from heaven on a white horse? Let me just read to you. Revelation 19:11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. But the white horse in Revelation chapter 6 cannot be the same as the white horse in Revelation chapter 19. The only similarity between the two is the white horse. One writer that I read this week summed it up this way. He said, the counterfeit is always revealed by a detailed comparison. The one whose name is the word of God has on his head many crowns. That is the symbol of all royalty and majesty. And the Greek word is diadema, the horseman of the first seal that we just read about in Revelation, wears no diadem. The false crown that he has, a Stephanus, is a victor's crown. What we learn when we study the scripture carefully is that the white horse in chapter 6 of Revelation is the counterfeit Christ. It is the Antichrist who comes out first and rides across the whole scene of the earth. He is coming as the Antichrist. The word Christ is in his name. As this writer said, it is the shop girl adorned with jewelry from a 10-cent counter imitating the lady born and bred who wears expensive jewelry. (laughs) All is not gold that glitters. And notice as you study what the Bible says about this white horse rider, notice what it says. The weapon of this rider is the bow. Says he has in his hand a bow. The Lord of the glory is different. He comes out in Revelation 19 and we're told he's carrying a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, Revelation 19:15. This is the faithful and true rider on the white horse, Revelation 19. But here in the sixth chapter, this is Don Quixote moving forth with a weapon that strikes terror only into those who don't know any better. And notice he has a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. This is not the Christ, though he might be dressed up to look like him. This is the Antichrist. And the rider upon the white horse of Revelation 6 is none other than the false Christ, Here is the Antichrist riding into the world at the beginning of the tribulation period and bringing peace to the world. Please notice, his bow has no arrows. He conquers peacefully. This is the false Christ who is going to conquer without any war at all. And we know about that because Daniel tells us in his prophecy that there is a prince that shall come and he will make a covenant with Israel to protect her from her enemies. And this future world ruler begins his career as a peacemaker. He rides not as a warrior, but as a peacemaker. And the next horse that comes after him is said to take peace from the earth. What peace does he take from the earth? The peace that the rider on the white horse brokers. He comes and he makes a deal with the world. Do not be confused by the similarity of this picture to that of Revelation 19. It has always been the purpose of Satan to counterfeit the work of Christ. He is the great imitator. He is the great deceiver. Dr. Criswell, who wrote about the book of Revelation in a wonderful way, said this, In the restlessness of nations and in the revolution of the masses and in the prospect of catastrophic war, The first thing that will happen is to be the appearance of this great final dictator, this great final world tyrant. He will promise peace and he will bring with him every token of affluence and prosperity. And the nations of the world and the peoples of the earth will flock after him. This is our Fuhrer. This is our great leader. This is our savior and the hope of the world. He comes riding on a white horse, conquering and to conquer The entire military and economic and political resources of the world are at his disposal. 
So the first thing that happens is the appearance of the Antichrist. The church has been raptured, the church is in heaven, and the Bible says here on earth, the Antichrist comes. He rides forth on the white horse, trying to deceive that he is really the Christ, but he's the false Christ. And now we notice that another seal is opened in verses three and four. This is the red horse. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Now, if the first horse, the white horse, is the Antichrist, the second horse, the red horse, personifies war. The idea of massive spreading wars shouldn't seem unrealistic to our modern ears. Just consider what has happened since the beginning of the Arab Spring in December of 2010. Rulers have been forced from power in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Yemen. Civil uprisings have erupted in Bahrain, in Syria. Major protests have broken out in Algeria, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Morocco, and Sudan. And minor protests have occurred in Lebanon, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Djibouti, and Western Sahara. Noted historian Arnold Toynbee reminds us of the relationship of the red horse to the white horse. Watch carefully. By forcing on mankind more and more legal weapons and at the same time making the world more and more independent economically, technologies have brought man to a degree of distress that we are ripe for the deifying of any new Caesar who might succeed in giving the world unity and peace. So the explosion of war in our culture has set the stage for us to believe that someone could come and make peace. And war will continue to escalate and continue to grow until at the beginning of the tribulation, because of the incredible war that's going on on this earth, people will be willing to believe that maybe someone can solve the war issue and the Antichrist will step forward with his covenant with Israel and his deceptive peace treaty with the world will be underway. I don't know if you read the book of Matthew, but our Lord's discourse in Matthew is almost like it goes right along with Revelation chapter 6. I want to read this to you and you watch what Jesus said about what's going to happen in the future and see if it doesn't sound similar to what we just read. Matthew 24, 6 and verses 21 and 22. Jesus said, in this time that's coming, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Jesus said what the writer of Revelation said. There's coming a time when there will be wars and rumors of wars. I could have given you all the statistics that I gathered, how many wars have been fought, how many peace treaties have been broken, how many places in the world are without peace for hundreds of days and months and years. And you say, well, isn't this supposed to happen after we go to heaven? Yes, but it's not gonna automatically begin then. 
all of these things which are going to happen in the tribulation period after the rapture, those things have a long tail on them that reach way back even before we go to heaven. So these wars and the escalation of wars and the scariness of wars is going to continue to grow. The rapture will come and we'll be out of here, but it will all have started beforehand. Notice the third horse. A third seal is opened and a black horse shows up. Revelation 6, 5, and 6. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now watch carefully what's going on here. The color black is often associated with famine. Famine and war go together, don't you know? A shortage of food will always drive up prices and force the government to ration what is available. When the text speaks of a denarius, it's referring to the standard daily wage for a laborer. A quart of wheat was about two pints. That was the very least amount to sustain one person. Before the famine, it was possible to buy 10 to 12 pints of wheat for a denarius. But when this famine comes... It will no longer be possible to do that. In this time predicted for the early days of the tribulation period, a man will have to work all day long just to get enough food to feed himself. But not all of the world population will be touched by this famine. Notice, the text says that the oil and the wine will be exempted from this judgment. The oil and the wine were considered the rich man's luxuries So although the poor man's food was to be severely restricted, the luxuries of the wealthy were to remain untouched. In other words, the affluent will escape major hardship and the masses will be hungry. One has to wonder what will become of the aged and the incapacitated and the children during this time when a man will work all day only able to earn enough to sustain himself with nothing left over for his family or his children the very wealthy will not be touched by the famine. I have some charts in one of the books that I've written that shows how this disparity between the poor and the wealthy has escalated during our lifetime. So that today, just 1% of the civilization in America controls 80% of the wealth. It's amazing what's happened. Everybody wants to fix that. But I want to tell you something. If the Bible says after the rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation, the poor are going to be poorer and the really rich are going to be richer and the people in the middle are going to be lost in this judgment of famine on the earth. And as, of course, you know, this plays right in to the role of the Antichrist because what is he going to do? Listen carefully. Revelation 13, 17, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the Antichrist will walk into this terrible famine and he will say, you want to have food? You want to eat? Well, you have to bow down before me. You have to worship. I am now your leader. Take the mark of the beast in your forehead or in your hands and that will be like your credit card to buy food and you won't have to starve to death. But if you refuse to do that, you will not be able to eat. You will not be able to buy food and there will not be any way for you to earn it because you can only earn enough in one day 
to care for one person's physical need. You see how all the horsemen kind of work together. The Antichrist working with war and war working with famine and famine working back again with the Antichrist. This is the confusion that will be on the earth during the tribulation period. Sidney Harris has said that an empty stomach is the worst political advisor in the world. But an empty stomach is acting as the Secretary of State for half of the population of our globe. One in eight people today do not get enough food to be healthy and lead an active life. Hunger and malnutrition are in fact the number one risk to worldwide health greater than AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. One need only ponder the exploding population of our world to understand why and how the prophecy of the black horse is beginning to be fulfilled as population explodes and food sources diminish and why the shadow of this coming is lying heavy over us at this very time. I want to show you some numbers that are quite startling. It took all of recorded history for the world to produce its first billion inhabitants and that took place in 1850. It took less than 80 years to pass the 2 billion mark and that took place in 1930. And it took 31 years to reach 3 billion in 1961. It took 15 years to add the 4th billion in 1976 and 5 billion was reached 13 years later in 1987. It took 10 years for the world to hit the 6 billion mark in 1999 and we passed the 7 billion mark in 2011. Somebody said, if we continue to grow at the present rate, in 900 years we'll have 60 million billion people on the earth, 100 people for every square yard of earth, land, or sea. How many of you know something's got to happen before that takes place? What this means, for instance, in India, is forced sterilization to curb India's population. In our country, it means that the crisis has just begun and it will continue to grow. Viewing the world's resources as the gas tank on your car, they have passed the half full point and they're moving toward empty. When you have an exploding population and a diminishing ability to produce food, and then let me tell you something else. And when you try to deal with this and you don't do with it right, if you don't deal with the food supply right, you make it worse. And so the thing that's happening is as we move toward the coming of Christ and the rapture, how many of you know we've said this before, future events cast their shadows before them. All these things we're talking about that we begin to witness in our world today, we can see happening. These things are just reminding us that our redemption is drawing nigh. If all these things are going to fully materialize after the rapture, the rapture has to happen first and we're seeing them now. That means that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back soon. There is no way for this to be understood in any other way. Hmm. Well, the Bible says it's the beginning of sorrows, but the end is not yet. This is a description of the first part of the tribulation. We'll have more of that tomorrow as we take part two of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. You may be interested in this because you probably know that this title has been applied to characters in computer games, rock bands, rock songs, NASA scientists. And in history, you go back, you'll find they borrowed the Four Horsemen 
of the apocalypse from the book of Revelation and applied it to a lot of things that don't have anything to do with Bible prophecy. But we have the original, and we're studying it from the book of Revelation. And I hope you are following along as we study. Once again, um, there are study guides for the series that you are listening to. This is the first time I can remember ever doing a three-month series, but we're doing it. We're in month number two of the 31 Undeniable Prophecies of the Apocalypse. And uh, as you know, every month we have a new study guide. So there are three study guides for this series. Once again, you can go to our website, davidjeremiah.org, and there you will find all of these study guides. You can order them along with the audio packages and have the material that we're sharing on the radio every day right at your own disposal. I hope you'll do that, and uh, I hope you'll join us tomorrow for part two of The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Signs, 31 Undeniable Prophecies of the Apocalypse, visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of Bible Prophecy by the Numbers. David's new resource that relates the numbers in Scripture to God's prophetic plan. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Signs, right here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. The Catholic monk, Thomas Merton, was a prolific writer of books on spirituality and social justice. From his writings comes this profound insight on the connection between fear and suffering. The more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer, because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you 
in proportion to your fear of being hurt. Now the way to break that downward cycle is to approach the future with faith rather than fear. When we trust that God is in control of our life, we can embrace those things we might otherwise fear. We can live expectantly, trusting God with the future. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's alternatives to fear on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.